Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Thursday, December 15, and here are some of the stories we are covering. The U.S. pledges tens of billions of dollars for Africa. Improving Africa's infrastructure is essential to our vision of building a stronger global economy that can better withstand the kinds of shocks that we've seen in the past few years. Meanwhile, President Biden says Africa's economic transition depends on good government. Human Rights Watch calls for accountability during Sudan's transition. South Sudan leaders are urged to redouble their efforts to prevent human trafficking. And a $1.6 billion lawsuit is launched against Facebook for allegedly inciting regional instability and ethnic cleansing during Ethiopia's civil war. I believe that Facebook is used as propaganda of war, genocide, and ethnic cleansing that's happening in Ethiopia. And Zimbabwe says it needs no new food imports until next harvest. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. The United States plans to commit $55 billion to Africa over the next three years, according to White House officials. The announcement comes as the administration of President Joe Biden hosts a three-day meeting with African leaders. Details from VOA's chief national correspondent Steve Herman in Washington. The U.S. three-year funding pledge contains $20 billion for health programs in Africa. Speaking to African leaders Wednesday at a business forum, President Joe Biden said the United States is all in on Africa's future, and he announced new trade opportunities and infrastructure commitments, including for clean energy and the digital economy. And improving Africa's infrastructure is essential to our vision of building a stronger global economy that can better withstand the kinds of shocks that we've seen in the past few years. The U.S. president is facing some criticism for not interacting individually with the visiting African leaders. Administration officials say soon Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, and some cabinet secretaries will individually be visiting Africa for detailed discussions. Steve Herman, VOA News, Washington. U.S. President Joe Biden says Africa's economic transition depends on good government, healthy populations, and reliable and affordable energy. Speaking Wednesday at the U.S. Africa Business Forum as part of the ongoing U.S. Africa Leaders Summit in Washington, D.C., the president says businesses seek out these things when they are looking to invest. We're taking on climate crisis prioritizing just not just energy transition in America, but in nations of all of Africa, and meeting the urgent needs to countries to adapt to the climate impacts that are already here. Just last month, I traveled to COP27 in Egypt, where I announced $150 million in an effort to support adaptation efforts in Africa, a down payment of my commitment to provide $3 billion annually to global adaptation efforts for 2024. And in a year that has seen elections across Africa, we've worked together with the African Union to strengthen democracy and the core values that unite our people, all our people, especially young people, freedom, opportunity, transparency, good governance. Now, you might be thinking, This is a forum dedicated to deepening business ties and advancing two-way trade investments between Africa and the United States. Why is Biden talking so much about all these other areas? It's because Africa's economic transition depends on good government, 
healthy populations, and reliable and affordable energy. These things business seeks out when they're looking to invest. They attract new opportunities, and they launch new partnerships. And the United States is committed to supporting every aspect, every aspect of Africa's inclusive growth and creating the best possible environment for sustained commercial engagement between Africa companies and American companies. The United States is all in on Africa's future. And the work we've done over the past two years, building on decades of vital investments made under previous American presidents, has helped make possible the critical steps that I'm about to announce. First, the United States is signing an historic memorandum of understanding with the new African Continental Free Trade Area Secretariat. This MOU will unlock new opportunities for trade and investment between our countries and bring Africa and the United States even closer than ever. This enormous opportunity, an enormous opportunity for Africa's future, and the United States wants to help make those opportunities real. We're finally implementing the African Continental Free Trade Area. It will represent one of the largest free trade areas in the world, 1.3 billion people, and a continent-wide market totaling $3.4 trillion. That was U.S. President Joe Biden speaking Wednesday at the U.S. Africa Business Forum as part of the ongoing U.S. Africa Leaders Summit in Washington, D.C. A $1.6 billion lawsuit has been filed in the High Court of Kenya against Meta, the parent company of Facebook. It accuses the company of inciting regional instability and ethnic cleansing during Ethiopia's civil war by allowing certain posts to go unchecked. The lawsuit is filed in Kenya because the petitioners say Facebook's algorithm is applied there and that the content moderation decisions that affect the larger part of Africa are made in Kenya as well. Well, Ibrahim Miera is one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit against Meta. He says his father died because of the post in Facebook, and he wants to make sure that no other family suffers the same fate as his family. Generally, as I am an active social media user, I strongly believe that Facebook is a big gun in Ethiopia. Uh, it's a big platform that influences Ethiopian and Ethiopia especially in the political aspects. So the first thing is, I believe that Facebook is used as a propaganda of war, genocide, and ethnic cleansing that's happening in Ethiopia. It's also a direct responsible platform for the tragedy, what we are suffering, the extrajudicial killing of our beloved father, Professor Mara Gamara, after two posts on the platform that caused immediate danger and uh, it was considered as a distress for our father. So that's why I just took the case to the Kenyan court expecting justice. Let me ask you, you said that Facebook ignore racist messages. Can you describe those messages? There are numerous posts that aggravates uh, or fueled uh, warmongers and genocide enablers to take action, mob action against innocent Tigrians uh, since the war broke out on November uh, 3, 2020. As uh, different media platforms suggest, almost 100,000 of people lost their life due to the protracted conflict. And I believe that 
Facebook is a brigade of army that sponsors to gaslight false information and hate speech on the civilians. Particularly to uh, my father's case, there are two posts directly my uh, father's name, address he lives, and some other details that is connected with the politics and the war going on. Unfortunately, my father was innocent. Before filing the lawsuit, did you ever try to reach out to Facebook to complain? Yes, I was trying to reach Facebook. The options they provide online, there are different algorithms, reporting mechanisms that can a user report anything against their interests. So I was trying to reach them for multiple times before, during, and after November 3. So what did they say? The report I have got from the feedback, they do have a community standard policy and from the report, they said that it was too late. It was on November 11 that I have received the first feedback saying that they just find, uh, find out the posts against their community standard or policy and removed it. I also got additional notification saying that they just removed the other posts that uh, they didn't remove at all, especially that of the first post by the Facebook page. Then after... In December 2022, I was trying to uh, reach them by reporting that the Facebook page responsible for the tragic death of uh, my father, but they said it doesn't go against their uh, policy, so they didn't uh, try to uh, close or take measures on the page. So you are suing Facebook for at least a billion dollars. What are you going to do with the money? Well, besides the money, we don't have demands that we expect Facebook to publicly apologize for our family, for their fidelity to remove or to take measures on that death sentence posted on Facebook, and at the same time to ask apology for other victim families in Ethiopia and elsewhere. The second demand we have is also demanding that Facebook invests in safety to stop such charges to happen in the future. And yes, as you mentioned, we sue them to pay a proper money to all the victims and at the same time to employ moderators and others. So honestly speaking, uh, as a family, we have a plan ever since of this tragedy, especially we are planning to establish a foundation on the name of our father to celebrate his legacy and as he was the most known influential chemist in the country, we are planning to build laboratories and libraries on his name. Abraham, thank you so much. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. The pleasure is mine. Thank you. That was Abraham Mira, one of the plaintiffs in the $1.6 billion lawsuit against Facebook. listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Barton in Washington. Today is Thursday, December 15. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
Human Rights Watch says Sudan's key political players and international partners should ensure that progress on human rights and accountability for serious human rights violations are at the center of any new transition. In a statement released Tuesday this week, the rights group says that would include ending the violent crackdown against peaceful protesters, releasing arbitrarily detained protesters, and taking concrete steps to ensure accountability for serious abuses. Michael Atit reports for VOA from Khartoum. The Forces for Freedom and Change Coalition, the main civilian component of the Sudan government before last year's coup, signed a framework agreement with the military leaders and other political parties nine days ago. The document lays out basic principles and government structure, but does not address five key issues, including transitional justice and security sector reform. Those issues are to be dealt with in a second phase of talks. Human Rights Watch charges the last 14 months have shown how desperate impunity fosters more killings and other abuses carried out by Sudanese security forces. Mohammed Osman, a Human Rights Watch researcher on Sudan, says history has proven that political stability cannot be achieved without justice and accountability. When you kick the justice and accountability and other important agenda down the ladder, so to speak, you would not produce a reliable stability. I mean, this is this is a matter of, of Sudan history since independence. You get this vicious cycle that could be broken if there has been the political will. The agreement says the incoming transitional government will be formed by civilians and that all government forces will be under civilian leadership. It lays out general principles to form a transitional institutions and retrace commitment to promote freedoms and rights and accountability and to reform security forces. But Osman says it fails to spell out any clear time frames or details about justice and security sector reform. The agreement indeed, yes, mentioned the key issues like justice and reform, but then it defers the agreement on these crucial issues to a second phase without providing timelines, benchmarks, um, details on the process itself, um, saying that it depends on the agreement on the stakeholders who themselves made clear that they're not going to be part of the process. Pro-democracy groups, including resistance groups, rejected the deal, saying they will not engage in any new power sharing with the coup leaders. Military leaders hosted the power sharing transitional government in October 25, 2021, and killed about 122 people during protests that followed, says Human Rights Watch. Osman says protesters and victims of the crackdown need to be part of the process. Um, there hasn't been much of participation for the key groups, um, stakeholders, including resistance committees and, and victims groups who, who, from the start of the process, following the coup, made clear that the process is not, is not achieving the demands for a full civilian rights-respecting transition. Sudanese writer Meki al-Maghribi says the agreement does not meet all the demands of the civilian groups, but calls it a good step forward. It puts disputes and complications in the track of long-awaited dialogue. Sudanese people and friends of Sudan should manage their expectations. All should be more realistic. Osman says international supporters, including the court countries of the United States, the United Kingdom, Saudi Arabia, 
the United Arab Emirates, as well as the United Nations, should seize this moment and call for the release of all people unjustly detained following the coup and ensure that peaceful protesters, including those who oppose the framework deal, can exercise their freedoms safely. For VOA News, I am Michael Atit in Khartoum. A UN human rights expert is calling on South Sudan's leaders to redouble their efforts to prevent human trafficking, child marriage and recruitment and forced labor. At the end of a 10-day visit to South Sudan, the UN Special Rapporteur on Trafficking in Persons told reporters in Juba on Wednesday that action is needed to prevent trafficking, ensure victims are assisted, and ensure that culprits are held accountable. Deng Gai Deng has the story for VOA from Boa, South Sudan. Sio Bohan Mulali, the UN Special Rapporteur on Trafficking in Person, has spent the past 10 days assessing the scale of human trafficking in the country and urged the government to take action. I'm calling on the government to redouble its efforts to prevent trafficking in persons for all purposes of exploitation, and in particular for purposes of sexual exploitation, child marriage, recruitment and use of children by armed forces and armed groups, forced labour and illegal adoptions. Um, urging the authorities to strengthen prevention measures and improve protection and support for victims as a human rights-based approach is critically important, as is a gender-sensitive and trauma-informed approach to trafficking in persons. Molali says she had what she calls constructive engagement with government officials during her visit, which included high-level meetings with government ministers and law enforcement agencies. She commended the progress made by the National Task Force on Counter-Trafficking in Person and Smuggling of Migrants, proposal of legislative and policy reform on trafficking in person, and for ratification of the Trafficking in Persons Protocol. The visit is taking place at quite a critical moment in terms of peace-building and state-building in South Sudan. Um, Conflict-related sexual violence, including trafficking of women and children, remains a serious concern. Uh, There's a need for attention to the risks faced by children associated with armed groups and armed forces and of conflict-related sexual violence and trafficking. Molali stressed the need to end sexual and gender-based violence as well as child and forced marriage. She also underscored the need to promote women's empowerment and their participation in peace-building. I hope that the recommendations resulting from my visit will provide important tools to prevent trafficking in prisons, to strengthen human rights and survivor-centred responses to trafficking at this critical moment in peace-building. Uh, ending trafficking in persons, especially women and children, is essential to achieving the sustainable development goals and to achieving gender, peace and security. Despite gaps in the rule of law, Mulali says there is an higher need for effective justice and mechanisms, including full-functioning court systems and implementation of the 2017-2030 National Strategic Action Plan with the goal of ending child marriage by 2030. My report uh, will be presented uh, to the Human Rights Council uh, in June 2023. It will include recommendations to the government as well as recommendations to UN entities, UN agencies and to development partners um, to continue to support South Sudan's work in combating trafficking in persons, especially women and children, and ensuring a human rights-based approach to responding to trafficking. 
The special rapporteur met with survivors and victims of trafficking, including those who had been trafficked for sexual and labor exploitation, domestic servitude, child and forced marriage, and child recruitment. She also met with a number of sex workers, feminist activists, women leaders, and community leaders in Bentiu and Nimli. In Bentiu, Mulali visited an internally displaced camp hosting over 106,000 people. An IDP comes formed as a result of climate-related displacement and flooding. She says conditions across the country have limited access to education and have increased the risk of trafficking, including for purposes of child recruitment and marriage, sexual exploitation, forced labor, and domestic servitude. For VOA News, I am Deng Guiding in Bor. President Emerson Umnagagwa's government says Zimbabwe is now food secured and will not import food until next year. As Columbus Mavunga reports from Zimbabwe's capital, Harare, the government claims are in sharp contrast to aid organizations who say that millions are food insecure. Zimbabwe has been known for years to rely on international aid agencies for food relief, but that is now changing, according to Monica Mchangwa, the information minister. She said about 544,000 metric tons of food comprising 467,000 metric tons of maize and 77,000 metric tons of traditional grains had been delivered by farmers to the country's Grain Marketing Board, or GMB, which buys harvested crops in Zimbabwe. The available grain will last for 11 months at a consumption rate of 49,295 metric tons per month. Wheat stocks at GMB stands at 179,000 218 metric tons, and this will provide 8.5 months cover at a consumption rate of 21,000 metric tons per month. The harvest of Zimbabwe's staple crops starts in March 2023, while wheat is harvested later in September and October. But it is mainly corn that many Zimbabweans rely on for their staple food called sadza or ischwala, a thick porridge covered in relish before being eaten. The UN World Food Programme in Zimbabwe says with funding from the USAID, it is importing corn from neighboring Zambia to some rural districts. On Wednesday, it said it would not stop its program for food insecure people until their next harvest. Here is Tatenda Macheka from the WFP in Zimbabwe commenting on Changwa's announcement. This is a positive development. However, food availability does not equate to food security, since not every Zimbabwean has access or can afford grain. The rural Zimvac estimates that 3.8 million people will be cereal insecure at the peak of the lean season. WFP has been providing food assistance since the start of the lean season in October and continues to work with the government to support those in need. At peak, WFP will reach 700,000 people with food assistance, while the government will support 3.1 million with cereal. Recently, the government released the Zimbabwe Vulnerability Assessment Committee, or ZIMVAC, which confirmed the figures Macheka talks about. However, the government is projecting optimism and talking about making Zimbabwe food secure. Columbus Mavungam, for VOA News, Harare, Zimbabwe.
And that's it for this Thursday, December 15th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for being our guest this morning. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Barty in Washington, saying, have a great day, and please be safe whatever you do. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. On this last U.S. politics edition of Encounter, we take stock of a divided Congress, the result of the November midterm elections, and what can the current Democratic Congress achieve in its waning days of 2022? John Fortier and Jim Kessler weigh in on the lame duck session and discuss challenges facing the razor-thin Republican majority in 2023. That's Encounter this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America.